Hey there, got some exciting news for you. The BlockWorks Podcast Network is hiring two podcast hosts for an upcoming show called Lightspeed. The vision for Lightspeed is an exploration into crypto from the angles of builders and engineers who are designing for scale and whose goal is to bring the next billion users into digital assets. If this sounds like you and you want to join me on the BlockWorks Podcast Network, go to blockworks.co slash careers. Links in the description. Thanks. I am joined by Martin Luberink, professor at the Victoria University of Wellington. Uh, Martin is an expert on the topic of regulatory bank capital, a topic which I feel is undercovered broadly in, in the world. And specifically, I've, we, you know, on Forward Guidance, we have not been covering this. So I'm, I'm really glad that we have uh, an expert with us to break down this complex issue. Professor, welcome to Forward Guidance. How are you doing? I'm fine. Thank you very much. Thank you for, thank you for hosting me. It's it's my pleasure, I, Professor. I want to learn what bank regulatory capital is. I want to explore it, you know, in some depth. Have it uh, apply it to the recent crisis, banking crisis in the United States, the fall of Silicon Valley Bank. What uh, regulatory capital, you know, what went wrong there? Uh, explore Credit Suisse, the uh, you know tier one, tier one bonds. What what went on there? Talk about the Reserve uh, Bank of New Zealand, which just raised by 70, 50 basis points where you are uh, located. That was a little bit of a surprise to to, to, yeah. to to us at least. Um, but to start off, tell us uh, once you you got your PhD and you went to the uh, Central Bank of the Netherlands. That's where you really started to work full time on regulatory bank capital. Take us back to to there. And, um, and and then and then you can introduce what what the concept concept is. Let's go back. Okay, uh, it's actually a bit of a longer story, but um, I worked after my PhD um, that I <clears throat> obtained in Holland. I thought about moving to Lancaster Uni University in the UK, and um, after a couple of years, I thought like <clears throat> uh, to take a sabbatical for a year, and I ended up in two thousand eight, seven eight. In, at the UNC Chapel Hill, which is a wonderful place. And I enjoyed my sabbatical over there. And then suddenly I noticed that banks in the US were toppling and there were problems with uh, Bear Stearns and, and other Washington, I think Washington Obama, was it? Yeah. They, were all, <laughs> they were all sort of a bit of in, in problems. And then I thought like, okay, um, so what's going on here? So I started looking into banks and bank debt in particular. Um, and then, at some point, I think in February, March, I thought uh, the sabbatical will end. And what's now? Shall I stay in the US or shall I go to uh, back to the UK or to Holland, uh, where my parents live? And I thought, um, and then suddenly I saw an advert from the central bank in Holland that um, um, that they had a position there for somebody who knew something about bank accounting. So I applied and the um, the interview was kind of interesting because I had a, a video interview with my future managers, and I pointed out that banks in the U.S. were shaky at that moment, and it was March 2000, uh, 2008. And so I asked them, you know, is it safe, um, and and is this is this only a U.S. problem, or you know, I can move to Holland, but it's not really uh, funny if I land up land in uh, or if I get a job in Holland, and then banks in Holland start toppling. Uh, because that will probably lead to a crisis and so forth. So, so no, they said you know the managers were, were adamant and they were very convinced that this was only a, a, a U.S. problem. And I said, well, if that's the case, then what prevents me from going back to Europe and then in particular Holland to 
to to uh, get in touch again with my parents and see them more frequently and so forth. So they said, it's only an American problem. And I arrived there in July 2008. And still, it was kind of uh, safe. But we all know that in September 2008, uh, Lehman collapsed. And then, you know, it wasn't at all a US problem in its own. So and soon after, uh, you know, the regulators, uh, the Basel Committee and various other regulators started redefining capital. And I was part of the working groups at the Basel Committee and the European Banking Authority to redefine capital. So that focused my interest on, on capital alone. And um, <clears throat> as a result, I learned a lot about capital. Um, and so after years, I think in 2013, I decided to take it a bit easier because it was hectic times. Uh, long working weeks and a lot of um, stress, I think, also. So I decided to move to New Zealand, where I got a fantastic job offer, and since then I'm there. Yeah, thank you for explaining that. What a journey! I mean, to to join a central bank in July of 2008, you know, yeah. two, two months later it's Lehman. That that really is remarkable timing. And then in the U.S., the banking crisis kind of ended. You know, 2009, 2010, a lot of failures, but you know, it it, 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 it was restored. Whereas in Europe, uh, the the sort of the stress continued. I I imagine. So, uh, yeah. Martin, I I want to ask you. I've heard this said uh, that, oh, Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, they were levered 30 to 1, 40 to 1. And now, this pre-Great Financial Crisis, they, they failed. Now, uh, Bear Stearns didn't fail, it was taken over. Um, now, banks are only levered 10 to 1. What does that mean? Well, it means that they're much more resilient than they were before. So that's a good thing. And I think that's one of the achievements of the Basel Committee and the Global Rules on Banking. The leverage has gone less levered. And, and that's a good thing <clears throat> across the board, I think worldwide. And also if you look at European banks in particular, they are much more resilient because of these higher requirements. So that's not a problem. I think you have to be aware of that there's always the possibility of a run or, you know, or mismanagement. Um, and that I think hit in particular SPB Bank and also Credit Suisse. The one thing that people may not understand very well or may have not seen on the radar, the banking or the global financial crisis, um, as a result of that, a lot of work was done on liquidity rules and capital rules. So they addressed credit risk and liquidity risk. And so credit risk and liquidity risk are now more or less um, sorted in terms of regulations. But what is kind of the more problematic one is operational risk. Um, and that can be operational risks are um, you know, there's a high variety in the types of risks that are that contribute to operational risk that could be fraud or that could be money laundering, mismanagement and so forth. So it's far more difficult to uh, manage or to regulate operational risk. In these cases, like SVB was probably also a case of operational risk where things were just not working fine in terms of governance, in terms of management, in terms of uh, the interaction between these supervisors and bank management and so forth. So it was more a combination of poor management, which then led to um, a very poorly diversified set of depositors who were hot depositors and could run quickly. That combined with heavy investment in a single or almost single asset type, it's, it's, you know, it's almost unfathomable, uh, unthinkable of what all the things that contributed to the demise of uh, SVB. But you know, the, the thing is, I think that's important is it was well capitalized. Uh, but as we've seen with a couple of bank failures, 
capital is not uh, the end of it. It's not not everything, and you have to be aware of other things like liquidity and in this case or these cases like Credit Suisse and and SVB that operational risk is still something to be uh, looked after. Can you break down what is bank capital? When people say banks are well capitalized, what do they mean? Oh, bank capital is is basically it's equity, and that's the difference between the assets and the liabilities. So. And there's a couple of adjustments, so there's a slight uh, difference between equity and and bank capital, but it, it's basically the difference between the assets on the left-hand side of the balance sheet and the liabilities on the right-hand side of the balance sheet. So that's the gap. And as long as you have more assets, or if the value of your assets are higher than your liabilities, you're in business. And so that is more or less, <clears throat> you know, the the difference between assets and liabilities. That's bank equity, and it, it should absorb losses. So that's the whole thing. If you if these assets start deteriorating in value, that means that the bank is running losses, and then equity should absorb these losses. So the concept of loss absorption is very important in bank capital. That's the, I think, the m- most important reason why we have bank capital. It's there to absorb losses. Right, but the amount of bank capital, even if it's still large, it can be wiped out completely if the loss is exceeded and then the bank is uh, mark-to-market insolvent. That's what happened with, with Silicon Valley, as you say, yeah. loaded up on uh, very interest rate, long-duration securities, treasuries, but mainly agency mortgage-backed securities, yeah. which lost an immense amount of value as you know the Federal Reserve rose uh, interest rates and they yeah. were negative, negatively convex. Um, so they lost more, more and more money. Um, and it wiped out the equity. So how is it that you said Silicon Valley Bank was well capitalized, but then the, the, I guess the losses were just too much. So so what went wrong there? And I could see on liquidity and credit, you could make an argument, well, agency mortgage-backed securities, very low credit risk, you know, guarantee of US government. And then liquidity, you can buy and sell them at will. Um, so where were the, the lackings of, of regulation and particularly interest rate risk? So the thing was, the interest rate risk is, is lowers the value of a lot of the assets. Um, however, I think there was a bit of an accounting trick that played um, was playing up here with SVB. Uh, most of the assets that the bank had <clears throat> were at um, at the original original 100% value, and that's all fine for many banks. They have these held to maturity assets which are valued at cost, and they they keep their value forever 100% on the in the books. Um, that's not a problem if the bank is well run, even though the um, the assets may the market value of these assets are are lower. Um, in the end, most banks will be able to pay back these, um, or they get 100% for these assets anyway at some point in time. However, you may have at some point in time, like now, because of interest rate risk, that these assets market values are a bit lower than their original values. And so, with the increasing interest rates, the the, the market values these of the assets that SVB held were dropping. And that should affect equity if you had full mark-to-market accounting. Um, however, because of the accounting, we see that the effects on equity were, or the, the the losses were kind of hidden, and as a result, didn't affect the equity value of SVB. Now, the problem is that, or the the point here is that if the bank is 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 well led and ticks all the boxes when with respect to governance and um, you know, diversifying its depositor base and investing in in other assets. If that's all all um, fine and well, 
then there would not really be a problem at SVB. The problem ensued shortly after everybody discovered that these asset values of the long dated um, investments had a low market value. And then depositors started running and forced SVB to sell these assets which had a book value of 100%, but they were sold, were forced to sell them at a very low price. And that, that led to losses. And as a result of these losses, uh, equity was stressed and these losses were imposed on the equity value. And as a result, equity, um, equity ratio, capital ratios of SVB dropped very quickly. So the thing is, yes, you know, temporarily you have these, <clears throat> the values of, of uh, some of these long dated instruments or, or investments, they can diverge because of lower market values. But at the end of the term, once these bonds are paid back or redeemed, the value should be back to 100%. And then you would never have a problem. The problem was that uh, SVB was forced to sell them uh, during mid-time or during the tenure of these um, of the um, of the instruments, and then had to crystallize the losses, which then affected the equity negatively. The thing is, may maybe um, maybe SVB would have been less problematic if they had held more capital. But if you just do the maths, it you know, more capital would probably not solve the problem of SVB in the end because, you know, the massive losses of on the securities were so high that even a higher capital ratio would not not help. But for sure, if they had a lower capital ratio, like pre-Basel or pre-GFC ratios, then the problems would probably occur way faster. My next question is, is it fair to say that Silicon Valley Bank had a very extreme mismatch in the duration of its assets and liabilities? Yeah, well, that that's kind of obvious. It's it's almost like <laughs> it's almost like um, how to show or how to not run a bank. Um, we all know that banks invest in long uh, maturity assets. You know, mortgages of thirty years or ten years, and they they borrow short. And there's a whole lot of tools there to prevent that mismatch from wreaking havoc with the bank, like hedges or diversifying depositors or diversifying assets and so forth. So in order to make that fragile banking um, model work with long assets and short um, liabilities, there's many supporting tools to prevent the bank from collapsing like uh, SVB did. And yet, you know, what we know is that SVB hardly used any of these tools. Like for example, if you look at New Zealand banks, they're exposed also to interest rate risk and they, but they have hedged all these risks using swaps. And so the problems are now, I think um, transferred off balance sheet to what is it central counterparties who absorb these risks now. So, you know, a thing like insuring yourself against the loss of value, which by the way, most homeowners would do with their own mortgage as well, just buy insurance. That was just, I think not uh, done by SVB. And then other things happen as well to, you know, so as a result, you know, of just a very simple banking model, which wasn't dealing with all the, um, uh, the tools or which didn't incorporate the tools that you should use uh, to deal with the fragile balance sheet that it had, you know, the result of that was just a, a, a quick demise. Yes, it's quite clear that they had a, a um, asset liability duration mis mismatch. What sure. I've been trying to find out, Professor, for a long time, and I have a theory I want to share is how the Silicon Valley Bank management thought that they were matched. And I think that they made assumptions about their deposit base yep. and about the duration of their non-maturity deposits, about how long they would stay there. 
It would, yeah. oh, it would stay for an average of four years, six years, seven years. I'm just making numbers, numbers up here. And it turned out to be wrong. Yes, demand deposits can be called on in, in the you know duration of one day. So you know one three hundred sixty fifth is the is the duration if if there's a bank run, but money stays there. Money tends to stay there. Money tends to increase. Eventually, yeah, yeah. money goes goes up. So is that the way that is that how Silicon Valley Bank management justified the interest rate risk themselves? They said, oh, we're hedged because these deposits have a duration of seven years, and they actually had a duration of one day. It seems to be that that was the case. They uh, relied on the stickiness of deposits, which then more or less cancels out the, um, the the downward trajectory of prices when interest rates go up. So if interest rates go up, then the asset values or the, the values of the investment of SBB would go down, but that would be compensated by the sticky depositors because you know it's easier to make money of for a bank in high interest times. And given that uh, depositors are sticky, uh, that creates an additional profit for the bank then. So the losses on the assets are then compensated by the stickiness of depositors. However, and that is one of the things that most regulators probably are thinking about, is what do we assume now with respect to the stickiness of depositors? Because what we've seen here is that they were hot depositors who, who quickly run, ran like in hours instead of in days. And that is something I think regulators are worried about given that you know, social media and your app will allow you to very quickly uh, move your money to a different bank. And so that's something that may will or probably will be addressed in future regulations. Thank you. You said earlier that the New Zealand banks hedge and uh, all of the U.S. Uh, globally systemically important banks have very sophisticated hedging programs. Uh, the degree to which those hedges offset the uh, losses, unrealized losses on uh, HTM portfolios, that, that's another side. But uh, my question for you is, what does a hedge mean? If you buy a 10-year tre US Treasury, uh, the only risk you're really taking right, is, is interest rate risk. So if you enter into a swap to hedge that risk, now you have swap spread risk. And you, you know, you're long someone thinks short another. Like you know, there's a saying of, uh, there's no the only perfect hedge is in a, a Japanese garden. Like if, if you want to hedge your Apple holdings by selling S and P 500 futures, you know, it's an imperfect hedge. Um, and I, I, you know, like what 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 income do you make as a bank if you're treasuries but you're sh you're short swap spreads? I mean that it's because the only risk you're taking is interest rate risk. So so what they do is they hedge it and so they transfer the risk to other parties off balance. And that's what. That's what we've seen happening. In particular, I think there were some cases in Holland and New Zealand and in, in the UK where just before the crisis, farmers were locked into a, a swap uh, to protect them from interest rates going up. It turned out that these interest rates went down. So a lot of uh, farmers and SME or small and medium-sized firms were uh, more or less painted into a corner by the swaps that they that they purchased. So the banks, they go free because they, you know, they're intermediating the swaps, they, on the one hand, they sell swaps to their uh, borrowers. Uh, on the other hand, they transfer, you know, the other, the counterparties then are pension funds and insurance or yeah, insurance companies and pension funds that, that are at the other side of the swap. And as a result, all the risks are off balance. And I think that the banks then keep for themselves the fee of the swap arrangement or the swap fee. Right. In that instance where a bank is facilitating a swap, and that would be a, you know, an investment bank doing that. But I'd say if Silicon Valley Bank, they had a huge influx of deposits, their deposits basically tripled in a, you know, 
uh, a little over a year, maybe two, two years. And yeah. with that, they bought uh, securities that had interest rate risk, you know, 10-year treasuries, sure, sure. A, a, a mortgage-backed security. By hedging those risks, you know, if, if I buy a 10-year treasury and then hedge it, what am I earning there? You, you, get, you get what I'm saying? Why not just hold it in cash? It's like buying Apple and then selling Apple. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. So, yeah, yeah well, that that's, gosh, yeah, that's a good question. So, they... Um... That's actually beyond my, <laughs> my my expertise, actually. Yeah, like how do they make money then? Because then if everything's hatched, they you know the, the banking aspect of the transaction then disappears because then you know it's not really banking any longer. If you move all the risk of your balance sheet, um, the only thing that you then have is income from what is it, fees or so. Yes, you're right. So so the, probably there will be an imperfection in the hedges. Um, and the other thing is you don't, you know, the other question that is um, that may be a, a bit of an issue is do the central counterparties or the center, what is it, the CCPs, will they be uh, sufficiently well capitalized to deal with the, um, in case there is there's a demand on, on the protection of these hedges. But yeah, it's a bit beyond my field of, um, of, of, uh, of. In so bank capital couldn't have saved Silicon Valley bank if there was more stringent capital rules or what do you think? I think there is a limit to what bank capital can protect a bank. This case was clearly um, the result of, of depositors running and then forcing the bank uh, to sell these held to maturity assets. And as a result of that, they had to sell assets that had a low value, that had a high book value for a very low price, which then re uh, resulted in losses and took away the, uh, the equity. So... Yeah, if you have an unpredictable run and runs are unpredictable, uh, they can wreak havoc. And so, you know, good risk management should be prepared for that. And, you know, as I said, there's so many tools that banks can use to do that. And yet, if I look at, you know, my understanding of SVB is that they ignore that because in the end, I think, and that's probably back to your previous question, it is tempting to make money like that and then not protect. And I mean, you can over-insure, but then you pay a lot of premiums for insurance and that takes away part of the, the profits that you want to make. Yes. And when I learned just about how uh, the duration of non-maturity deposits, how that plays such a key role in the duration of their liabilities, it's an assumption that you have no idea. The banks have no idea there's going to be a bank run or they could. the duration could be 20. It could be one day. And it's, <laughs> it's just kind of uh, a little scary. <laughs> but it's also based on trusts, you know, so yeah. you have, yeah, so... On the one hand, it, it's a risky um, setup if you <clears throat> if you lend long and borrow short. Of course, there's always risks, and the, the best thing a bank can do, and which many banks do successfully, um, is to manage these risks. Um, <clears throat> and there's so many. As I said, there's regulatory tools. There's there's capital. There's there's hedges. There's derivatives. There's good management. There's good governance. All the tools are there to protect a bank from being exposed to the risk. But if you chop away most, if you just ignore all these tools, yeah, you know that that may lead to um, to the outcome that we've seen in Silicon Valley Bank. In a way, it's an, an exceptional situation. You know, the, the case of Silicon Valley is probably exceptional. Yes. Uh, sa that said, it doesn't mean that it won't happen to other banks. It, it, in my case, you know, what I learned from that is that bank runs, even with high capital, are possible. <clears throat> and also, you have to be aware of the fact that in this case, uh, 
governance and operational risk played a, an important role. And that is one area, as I said before, that's an area that wasn't well covered after the uh, global financial crisis because operational risks are so diverse that it's very hard to model them. And the modeling in the Basel regulations on uh, credit risk are in a way kind of primitive. They're, you know, the capital requirements for operational risk are based on, on sales values, for example, or, or, or margins. Um, that are created in some business lines. Like the more margin you earn in business line X, you know, the higher your requirement will be for operational risk. So that doesn't really um, deal with operational risk like anti-money laundering, fraud, theft, fire, um, and all sorts of other things. So it's hard to model. And as a result, you know, you will see that mistakes may happen because of the lack of, um, the lack of knowledge about how operational risk works. So what are the tools that banks and bank regulators can use to, about interest rate risk? You talked about derivatives, so that's basically swaps, you know, the one type of hedge. There's, there's bank capital. What, what else? What are the other tools available? Oh, yeah, and the other one is just diversify your, your deposit base uh, to make sure that you have diverse depositors and hopefully some sticky depositors. And on the other hand, also make sure that you don't have a large exposure on a single asset class. Um, that's banking 101. Banks are very... You know, they in our country we have four banks, um, <clears throat> and their main asset class is um, residential uh, real estate, and so there is a high sensitivity of bank capital uh, with respect to changes in the uh, the values of homes in New Zealand. So that's risky, and so therefore New Zealand banks have to hold high capital to protect themselves from anything that happens to a single asset class. But if you can diversify. Or if a bank diversifies in various other asset classes, you know, not solely focused on on residential mortgages, but also other, you know, like what is it, um, small and medium-sized firms, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. If you diversify, then the risk of you running a loss will disappear, or you know, will almost disappear in full. Hey there, sorry to interrupt. Announcement: Blockworks is hosting an event called Permissionless in September. It's a crypto event. It's in Austin, Texas. We did permissionless in 2022. It was the biggest and best DeFi event in the world. And this year, lightning will be striking twice. Historically, our ticket prices have gone up about 10 times from the day the tickets go live to the day before the event. If you're like me and bad at math, that's 900%. So it might be savvy for attendees to consider buying tickets now rather than later. If you're listening to this and you're saying, Hey, Jack, I'm not really into this whole crypto thing. I want to hear about the Fed. I want to hear about the dollar, Bretton Woods, three, four, five. I hear you. I'm not telling you to buy a ticket and the interview will resume momentarily. However, if you are into the crypto thing and permissionless is something you might want to attend, what I'm saying is there's no time like the present because tickets will go up and if history is any guide, prices will go up a ton. Anyway, the link is in the description and you can get an additional 10% off by using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. What are the major ratios for bank capital? Uh, this common equity tier one, uh, the supplementary leverage ratio. What are these? Why are they important? And, and are, name, name some other ones. Well, I think the most important one is the one, <clears throat> uh, the risk weighted one. It depends a bit on where you live. I think in Europe and in uh, outside the US, the focus will be on common equity tier one, which is the risk weighted, uh, which is capital of the highest quality, and then that is equity minus, for example, goodwill and other items that are 
deemed not to be very high quality equity. So it's, it's core equity and then divided by risk-weighted assets. That's your common equity T1 ratio. So you have high quality equity divided by risk-weighted assets. In the US, I think there's more focus on um, T1 or common equity T1 divided by total assets, which is the, the leverage ratio. That could be, I think, the supplementary uh, leverage ratio. And so what these ratios do is they just, um, they measure the amount of loss absorbing capital and then you know they, um, and the ratio is just to correct for for the amount of risk so the the higher the risk the higher risk weighted assets or assets will be the more capital you have to hold so if you know in the risk weighted ratios the risk weighted assets will drive the demand or um, drive the numerator um, to be higher so a more risky bank will have to hold more equity uh, and that is to absorb more more losses and for the so you have common equity T1, which has become very popular after the financial crisis, and I think there's tier one, which is which includes, which is equity plus um, hybrids, the ones that wreaked havoc on um, on Credit Suisse like additional T1. There's tier two, which is another layer of capital which is meant to be used um, once the bank is gone concern, so that absorbs losses in when the bank is bankrupt or in liquidation. And so these are the most important ones uh, that I have, that I know. I mean, right. but the big, big distinction is the one, the uh, common equity one um, divided by risk weighted assets, uh, that ratio, the CET one ratio versus the leverage ratio, which is, uh, which doesn't rely on risk weighted assets, but on total assets instead. Thanks. So if uh, there is a common equity tier ratio of, of 10%, that means if it's a, a billion dollars in assets, in risk-weighted assets, it'd have a hundred, yeah. uh, let's say a billion, a billion assets, it would have a hundred million in equity. Yeah, yeah. So it means that, you know, if you if you increase that from one to two billion, then that doubles more or less the, the, the required amount of capital that you hold uh, against these assets. Right, and so folks listening, that may sound simple, but the level of risk-rated assets itself is a very complicated equation, right? Because certain assets have certain risk weights and others yep. have other risk weights. Uh, yeah. Tell us about that. So on average, about 70% of the total assets will be translated in risk-weighted assets. So your risk-weighted assets are about two-thirds of total assets. That's for most banks, a ballpark figure. So, um, But if you're more risky, if a bank has more risks, more risky assets, like in uh, more risky industries, then you will see that the um, risk-weighted assets will, will increase. Um, cash, for example, has no risk. And as a result, cash has given will be given zero risk-weight. Um, SME firms, small and medium-sized firms, I think they have 100% risk weight. So loans, they count, to the, uh, loans to them have 100%. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm talking about loans. So old, so it depends a bit on the riskiness. Some some uh, assets have higher risk. Some assets have lower risk. Residential uh, mortgages have relatively low risk. It depends a bit on where you are and where you live. But I think in New Zealand, it's about 35% risk weight assigned to residential mortgages. So it's no surprise that banks will invest in these low risk assets because uh, they don't contribute a lot to uh, the, the requirements. So the higher the, the weight, the more capital you have to hold. The lower the weight, the less capital you have to hold. And so banks will tend to move towards or invest into <clears throat> or um, 
lend to um, borrowers of a, of a low risk type. Right. But sometimes, rarely, there can be a difference between an asset that the regulators tell the banks is has a low risk and an asset that actually is low risk. And that is where trouble can emerge. Take us back to Basel II. Is it true that banks could hold a AAA rated paper that was basically you know, collateralized by subprime mortgages at a somewhat low risk rate? And did that contribute to the great financial crisis? Uh, yeah, in a way it did. Um, like the AAA, because of the AAA rating, these assets were deemed to be safe. And as a result of that, they had lower risk weight. And as a result means that, you know, banks had to hold less capital against that to protect themselves from the losses, which makes sense if, if these AAA ratings were right, then it all makes sense. But in this case, these AAA ratings, and we all saw the movie, um, what is it? Uh, the Big Short. The Big Short, and we read the book, and we know that you know, there's discrepancies here. The other example is there, if you look at sovereign bonds, they have a very low risk weight. But then there's countries like Greece at some point in time that had very high uh, risk attached to these sovereign bonds, and yet they were given a, a very low risk weight. So there, there can be discrepancies between the actual rate and the um, and the regulatory rate. So again, that that's for risk management and for supervisors to be aware of. Like, oh, ho, oh, oh, man, you're you're investing a lot of uh, your your capital or your money is going into investments into Greek uh, sovereign bonds. Are you sure you're okay with that? You know, that should be the question of a supervisor then to put to the bank who invests in these assets. I feel like a lot of that sensitivity is paying attention to credit risk. Oh, a loan to a business, they might pay you back, they might not. So you should have a high risk rate. A loan to a government, aka a sovereign bond, that you're going to get paid back. Even in Greece, you know, you're probably going to get paid back. But there's interest rate risk as well. Uh, does what, is, what do risk weights look like for sovereign bonds? New Zealand, Europe, US, choose wherever you want. And do you have to hold, is a 30 year treasury, 30 year sovereign bond, does that have a higher risk weight than a 10 year? Does that have a higher risk than five year, a two year? Is there a, a, in the same way that there's a gradation for credit risk, is there a gradation for duration risk? Um, uh, you caught me off guard on that one. So I think, yeah, I think it's very tied towards countries um, and whether it's OECD countries or not. Um, but I'm not sure. I, under Basel II rules, there may be, there may be, um, if a bank can use its own own modeling to determine risk weights, then probably maturity will factor in. So you know, probably banks that are under IOB may may be able to do that. But I'm not sure about the standardized approach of whether they can do that. But it it would make sense. Got it. Got it. Well, I feel like if if you if you don't know, no one knows. <laughs> No, well, no. Yeah. Well, it depends. You know, I'm. I'm. Um, my focus is very much on on um, on the, the the numerator of the um, the ratios, the what it goes into the denominator, like how risk weights are uh, determined at a very detailed level. You know, that's beyond my reach at the moment. <laughs> but you know, in general, I think what is the case is that many of these risk weights they are low for asset classes that are deemed to be safe. The problem is that there can be divergences here and there can be things like maturity. Um, but that should be dealt with, I think, under market risk. Market risk, um, And then there's, in, in European banking regulation and worldwide, there's also what they call pillar two, which is an additional layer of capital, which banks have to hold to deal with all sorts of risks that are not 
dealt with under the standard framework. So for example, just to explain that, the, the, the CET1 ratio requirement, and uh, you know, that's about, um, what is it, 7%? That requirement is what we call a pillar one requirement. And then there's buffer requirements on top of that, et cetera. That's all what we call pillar one. It's visible to investors and people like me and you. Uh, we know, for example, that if a bank has, say, 8% um, common equity T1 and the requirement is 7%, then it's only there's only 1% headroom for that bank. That's not a lot in, in current standards. What we don't know is what part of that 1% um, is required you know, whether there is an additional requirement from the supervisor to hold more capital than 7%. And in Europe, that can be done through what they call pillar two add-ons or pillar two, where the supervisor and the bank agree on holding more capital to cover risks that are not covered for credit risk, market risk, and operational risk. And so uh, the ECB is, a, is an example here. The European Central Bank, once every year, they send a letter to the banks that they supervise and they tell them, it's all fine and hunky-dory that you hold X amount of capital to meet the official requirements, but we think you have more risky assets. And for that, we want you to hold, <clears throat> say, 50 basis points or 100 basis points more pillar two capital. Uh, and some countries are more transparent about pillar two requirements and others are, are less um, transparent. The European Central Bank is very transparent about that. They have pillar two requirements that they publish. And so investors can look at that and say, hey, you know, even though the bank meets its formal pillar one requirements, the one that are very known, like 7% for common equity T1 or um, et cetera, the additional layer, what we call pillar two is, is an, is an add-on which should cover most of the other risks. And Credit Suisse. Oh yeah. So the Credit Suisse story is a bit of a funny story, but yeah, they met all the requirements and they had sufficient capital. Um, what they also had is what they call uh, additional T1. And that, you know, the, uh, the origins of additional T1 bonds is Basel III. <clears throat> Before Basel III, we only had tier one and tier two. But after Basel III or because of Basel III, uh, the regulators decided to have high quality capital which is the best quality capital of all, which is called common equity T1. But then there was a layer created um, for pseudo equity, as I call it, and that is additional T1. So you have a layer of T1 consisting of common equity T1 that's very popular and well-known. And on top of that, you have additional T1. And these additional T1 um, items, these are bonds or hybrid capital, which are a bit of a mix between equity and debt. But they, in the case of Credit Suisse, they were bonds. Um, and they're, they are almost like equity, but they also have some characteristics of debt. So this is a mix of equity and debt. And the reason with, that we have these additional T1 bonds is that they're very popular because the payments on these bonds are tax deductible for uh, European banks. So in Europe, the, the 81 bonds are popular because they count towards capital, which is great. And even greater is that they're far less expensive than equity because the payments, the coupons or the interest rates is tax deductible. So there's a big tax advantage on issuing these additional T1 bonds. And the great upside of that also is that they count towards loss absorbing capital. So it's the best of both worlds. And as a result, 
you see that Credit Suisse and many European banks have issued additional T1 bonds. What people didn't always realize is that these additional T1 bonds um, are, <clears throat> are meant to be loss absorbing and going concern, which means that if the bank gets into trouble, the regulator can decide to write them off or convert them into equity. And so the owners will be wiped out. Um, and so the upside of that is that you know, a well-capitalized bank, and there are many well-capitalized banks, can issue these bonds um, for the bank. It's tax deductible and advantages to do so. And the holders of these, or the investors in these bonds, they get a high coupon or high interest rate. So again, here it's the AT1, they have so many fantastic features. They offer the investors a high coupon. Um, the bank gets tax deductibility and they contribute to loss absorbing capital. So that what what can go wrong? Uh, we, we know that. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what um, could possibly go wrong? Yeah. So those with uh, Credit Suisse uh, taken over by UBS, those tier one bonds, I think were completely wiped out, went to zero. And you know, that risk, I think people who, you know, were in the know, people who read the prospectus, they they knew that. But what happened that I think surprised a lot of people is that the uh, tier one uh, capital, those bonds, those uh, additional tier one capital bonds got wiped out, but the equity didn't get wiped out. And yeah. those AT1 bonds were supposed to be on top of the equity. Do you know what, what, ha what happened there? I think it's very confusing what happened there. And still the um, FINMA and the, the authorities in Switzerland, they came out with some explanations about what they were doing and why they were doing. But you know, there's a, it been probably can be best characterized as it's been, um, it's been a messy way of resolving or solving the problem that's called the Credit Suisse. The way they, the authorities went about it was just not, um, not great, to put it mildly. Um, if a bank enters a resolution, and that could have been done, in these cases, you start from equity, <clears throat> and then you wipe that out, and then you you wipe out additional T1 and then tier two, and then um, all the unsecured debt, et cetera, et cetera. So you, there's a clear ranking in the wipeout in, in, um, in gone concern or when a bank liquidates or is in resolution. However, Credicis was not really in resolution. They, it was sold to, um, to UBS. And so there's a lot of misunderstanding about actually what was going on here. Was it resolution? No, not really. Was it uh, uh, loss absorption and going concern? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of confusion there, but the market was shocked by that because it was, even though it was written in the text, the um, the expectations of investors were such that the investors expected the wipeout to start from equity and then work your way up to whatever you need to cover the losses, to um, yeah to cover the losses through first equity, then AT1 or additional T1, and then tier two, et cetera, et cetera. So, so that was a shock. And there were a couple of indications before the, the shock uh, applied that the um, regulators in Switzerland would respect that, but in the end, they didn't respect the hierarchy. The other thing that's kind of weird is they wiped out the entire 70 billion, 17 billion of additional T1, which is large. But the idea, as I explained at the start, is that capital should absorb losses. And if you go to the accounts from Credit Suisse, you will see that yes, Credit Suisse had losses, but they had sufficient capital in the first place so uh, to, to absorb these losses. And then 
through equity. And then for the remainder of losses that need to be absorbed, you have to take a look at these additional T1 bonds. But it's kind of a very, um, very greedy in a way from the from the official or from the authorities in Switzerland to wipe out 17 billion of AT1, um, whereas probably there was no need for that entire amount to be um, to be taken down. Mm. Uh, so Martin, there's been a, a widespread view, a mainstream view that I've heard that yes, banks had a lot of problems in terms of their capital funding. They were undercapitalized 2007, 2008. That's why you know the global economic crisis occurred. But the re- the regulations, you know, which you Martin, you know, helped helped shape and create and implement, because of those regulations, Basel III, banks are much better capitalized. And I know that's a fact that banks are much better capitalized, you know, mostly all around the world than they were before, before crisis. But the argument is because banks are much more capitalized, there's nothing going to be we're going to be worried about. We're not going to have these banking issues again. Let's God, say in yeah. 2019, before all this happened. How much did you believe that argument in 2019? Agree with that argument? And how, now that Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, Credit Suisse, now that they have sort of uh, collapsed, how uh, much do you agree with it now? Well, yes, I mean, correct. Because if you look at the spreads of AT1 now, you, they've, they've gone down. So the, the shock over the last weeks seems to be um, abating. It's, it's getting less, you know, um, <clears throat> Where the spreads are going down, and things are stabilizing, and the European banking center, uh, the European uh, banking sector, held up quite strongly. Whereas I think before the global financial crisis, a failure like uh, an epic failure like the one that we've seen with Credit Suisse would have probably lead to far more serious contagion. So yeah, yes, you know the the framework of Basel III and the way Europe implemented it most likely in full and many um, many non-US countries implemented Basel III pretty much for all banks and they implemented it in full including um, you know the, the whole capital framework but also the liquidity framework and many other um, tools that Basel III offered and so you see it at work now because I think most of the stress is now gone in, in European banks and they 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 held up very well so I agree with that but the other thing is complacency and stuff that is still not well covered, I think, as I mentioned before, there's still problems with operational risk, um, which are hard to model and hard to regulate. Uh, and this case was, as I said, you know, Credit Suisse was a long uh, story of a lot of operational risks um, and a slow burn. And, and what, had- Martin, sorry, Professor, what, what are those operational risks? Can you give us a few examples? Uh, there could be, it could be, there could be a lot of uh, problems with operational risk. It's just uh, how the bank conducts its operations and what can go wrong there. So things like fraud is one, um, and but fraud can be wide. I mean, it can be accounting fraud. It could be you know a single person stealing some money. So, so yeah. that's already one. And then money laundering is one. Um, operational risk. Other. I guess uh, Archegos, you know, banking a, a client who uh, was taking a lot of risks. Archegos. Yeah, well, that's operational risk. I think yeah. it's just mismanagement. And they were, if you follow the correspondence between Archegos and and Credit Suisse, Credit Suisse was kind of waiting for results to come through from Archegos, which then weren't delivered, and so time lapsed. And so there's something in the way the bank organizes these things that is not okay. It's just the the maybe the incentive structure, maybe the reward structure, the governance structure, and so to cover that all in in a single metric for operational risk is 
obviously not not easy, um, and, and that may have contributed, I think, to to the um, to the demise of, of Credit Suisse. It's just maybe maybe the authorities in Switzerland were were very traditional in that they thought like you know we covered liquidity, we covered um, uh, credit risk, and we probably have some cover or some idea of how to deal with uh, operation or with um, with market risk. But then the hard part is probably um, operational risk, and maybe they neglected that part. Right. So uh, some of the problems in the U.S. banking system, or, or at some banks, I should say, probably wouldn't have happened if the Federal Reserve hadn't raised interest rates, uh, you know, close to 500 basis points in uh, 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 roughly a year. How is the New Zealand yeah. banking system doing, given that it has raised by 525 basis points, uh, you know, over a similar period? Well, the thing is, with New Zealand banks, is there are you know, I, I can't promise anything for the future, but they are most amongst the most resilient banks in, in the world. They have increased the capital ratios um, and they will be about you know, close to 20% now, uh, which is very high compared to other countries. So, so they're on, they're, they're super they're, high. Yeah. yeah, they're super high amongst the highest in the world. They're, they're working towards that. So they started working from uh, a traditional Basel requirement, say in the whereabouts of 10%, but they're moving it up to to close to 20% now, which is which is good. Uh, the other thing is the risk rates in New Zealand are such that they um, that they don't discount the risk too heavily. Like worldwide, a worldwide comparison will show that New Zealand banks' risk rates are kind of high compared to other countries. As a result of that, you know the, that forces up the amount of capital that New Zealand banks have to hold already. So the New Zealand banking system is super safe and probably one of the safest ones in the in the world um but yes you know the the interest rate risk that the question was about the uh, the reserve bank they jacked up the uh, the rate by 50 basis points last wednesday um it came as a bit of a surprise but then again <clears throat> the the interest rate is, risk is covered for um through uh, through derivatives um and so banks are insured against the interest rates risk so I think banks will manage quite quickly. On the other hand, there will be a bit of a squeeze because you know the higher interest rates. Um, so what happens is that you know uh, depositors will demand higher higher interest rates, and um, and as we've noticed, depositors may have become a bit more uh, easy to move their funds elsewhere. So that puts costs puts elevated costs on the funding side of bank, whereas. There's competition also in the, in the market for for mortgages, and so that may push the um, the uh, net interest margins for New Zealand banks down. So that could be a bit of a, a slow burn, which may affect the profitability of New Zealand banks um, in the you know going forward. So the the asset side is a bit squeezed because of competition and because of um, yeah, mainly because of competition, I think. And the the funding side will become more expensive because. Uh, depositors will demand higher rates and so that will lower the profitability of banks going forward then again the new zealand banking system is one of the most profitable banking systems in also in the world so their the uh, roe is about 12 percent, which is high uh, roa is also very positive and high and so therefore our banking system will probably not be affected too much by uh, by these higher interest rates so the trade-off between financial stability 
and um, and monetary policies are are probably not so prevalent here in New Zealand. Can you explain that interest rate hedging point? So let's say I'm a New Zealand bank, you're a New Zealand bank, you know, RBNZ, Reserve Bank of New Zealand, they raise interest rates, they increase our future profitability when we make loans, and the spread probably will be higher than the that you know, that, that spread will go up that more than the deposit rate. So we'll make you know, higher net interest margin. That's good. That's why people say, you know, rising interest rates are good for banks. Um, but on our securities, particularly fixed uh, rate, long duration securities that we own, we will suffer losses realized or, or unrealized. So we hedge that risk. So let's say I want to hedge that risk. I entered into a swap contract with you where I make money as interest rates go up and you lose money as interest rates go up. But now you have that exposure. You know, it's kind of like a hot potato I'm passing to you. You're passing to another bank. Uh, where do the losses go? And who is on the other side of that trade who can absorb the, the loss of... On the borrowing side of the bank's balance sheet, so their assets, they are they're swapped and who's... So these swaps, interest rate swaps, may be taken by um, small and medium-sized firms and farmers and so forth. The, the counterparty, the, the, the party holding the risks of the swap on the other, other hand, um, my understanding is that it goes to what is the CCP, so these uh, central clearing uh, institutions that that absorb uh, the risk associated with these uh, um, with the swaps. Um, and in other, it could also be um, pension funds, which are now <laughs> increasingly under stress uh, because of that. So I think most of the risks are farmed off balance and, and they, they land elsewhere. Um, and, and the question is, and that's one of the things that is a bit of unknown, is like with the global financial crisis, nobody realized that most of the risks were absorbed by AIG or in the end ended up with AIG. And so that to prevent that from happening, we have the uh, CCPs, which, which probably manage these risks better than before the crisis. So yeah, somebody will take that risk, but I think the, 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 um, the framework is, has improved in that. Um, these, the risks at the other end of the swaps don't end up with a single insurance company. And CCP stands for clearing party, I think. But Central clearing party. So there's the clearing risk, but do those parties also take on the risk of if I want to enter into a swap where I make money if as interest rates rise, they're on the other side? Like they're a, they're they are not just clearing, but they are a counterparty. Yeah, but my understanding is that the, these risks then will not affect a single uh, party. So the you know the CCPs they. Uh, they diversify th these risks, um, but you know, that's kind of technical. Sorry. Um, yeah, but but if, but if all the banks want to uh, enter into a swap, to they're all going to go the same way, right? They're not going to hedge against interest rates going down when interest rates are at zero. Yeah, but it depends a bit on who's on the other side. And I said, you know, in some cases, it will be uh, will be firms that have a different asset structure, like um, pension funds. They they have long liabilities and short assets, and that ma matches. So that matches in a way is the counter yeah. to what's the uh, the other parties. So you you have to find. So these industries currently, as we've seen, is pension funds are now um, a bit stressed out because they now are absorbing the risks that um, <laughs> of being on the other hand of the swap. Hey there, sorry to interrupt. A lot of forward guidance listeners are not into crypto. If that's you please skip ahead, get back to the interview. Some Forward Guidance listeners are into crypto, some own crypto, a smaller percentage owning lots of crypto, 
and a much smaller percentage work at crypto hedge funds. If you're in those latter two categories, BlockWorks Research might be a good fit for you. BlockWorks Research is a research and data platform that analyzes governance, tokenomics, and models of interesting crypto projects, including new protocols. There's a lot of edge that can be gained from reading these reports. You can check out a sample report at www.blockworksresearch.com research and hit the free report toggle. If that is of interest, full subscriptions can be purchased at www.blockworksresearch.com sign up. You can also get 10% off using the discount code guidance10. Thanks, and let's get back to the interview. Tell tell us what happened to Kiwi Bank. I know there was a bank that had some transaction and you wanted to learn this bank was taken over for a certain valuation and I don't think you received an exactly clear answer. What what it was Kiwi Bank? What was the transaction? Why was it valued? How it was valued? And and tell us that story. Oh, Kiwi Bank is a traditional New Zealand bank. Um, it, it hasn't been long. It hasn't been around for very long, um, a couple of decades maybe, and it was more or less like what we've seen in many other countries, uh, a, a bank that was half state owned, half private owned. Um, it was a smaller bank, one of the smaller banks with, you know, the, the big four ones are Australian owned banks, but then the next up is Kiwi Bank, which is bank number five. And that's a, a, a truly New Zealand bank. And, and there's a bit of a political dimension there because you know, some people in New Zealand find it very comfortable to have a, a truly um, New Zealand bank, which isn't owned by Australian parent banks. Uh, that bank... Uh, performed okay-ish over the last decade, but what we've what I've noticed is that um, they were struggling to get their capital up to the the higher requirements from the Reserve Bank. So I think I said before that the Reserve Bank increased its capital requirements significantly, and these are phased in over the next five, six, seven years. Kiwi Bank lost capital, or they 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 couldn't get the capital up. And that was clear, I think, after the announcement of these capital requirements in 2019, just before COVID arrived, uh, it was clear that Kiev Bank would struggle to increase capital because they're not so profitable, they're not so large to make use of all the effects there or all the goodies that comes with size. And so it was decided <clears throat> that the owners or the, one, of the, one of the owners thought like, you know, this is not a great investment. And um, and they wanted to abandon their investment in um, in Kiwi Bank. So that's not great if the owner wants to walk away from a bank. Um, that's kind of a, a mini run, not by depositors, but the owners. But but yeah. And so a solution was um, made for Kiwi Bank to have it bought by the state, uh, and it was bought from its three owners. Um, one is a large pension fund. The other is a um, health insurance state-owned health, health insurance firm. And the third one was the New Zealand Post. So the three owners were bought out uh, by the state in August last year. And to me, it was more like a bailout in that the current situation with the bank was unsustainable in that it couldn't meet the higher requirements. And it could only do so be um, by being far more profitable than it was. And it isn't that profitable. It just it makes profit. Yes, it's not a loss-making bank, but it's not as profitable as the other uh, big four banks. 
the government stepped in, bought the bank, and I tried to figure out what the price actually, why did they pay, why did the government pay $2 billion or 2.1 billion New Zealand dollars for that bank? So in our country, we have a, a Freedom of Information or Official Information Act, which allows you to uh, ask the government about these transactions. So I send an OIA or an, a request I think in the U.S. it's FOIA or so. Yep, yep. Freedom of, Freedom yeah. of information. So I, yeah, yeah. I send a FOIA request to the uh, ministry, to the Treasury or the Ministry of Finance, and they said, "Well, actually, there's no such calculation. <laughs> um, we don't. It was agreed between parties. I mean, that had the characteristic of um, of horse trading. Like uh, it's like a, a nice round number, uh, two point one billion dollars. Maybe, maybe the." The idea was to have something between two and two point five. They settled for two point one. But upon requesting the workings for that uh, calculation or the valuation, you know, send me the spreadsheet or send me your workings. Um, I just got zero answer on that one, which I think is not great because it's taxpayers' money being spent on a bank which is not the most profitable bank. And if you go through the documentation which was released, it seems as though it was a foregone conclusion early on in two thousand. 2020 that the bank would have been bought by the government anyway. And so uh, it wasn't a lot of work done on trying to find the best solution for the bank, i.e. maybe having it partially floated or having outside investors in it or having other solution. It seems as though from the documentation, it was all a foregone conclusion that the state would buy it anyway. We're now half a year later and I looked at the profitability of uh, Kiwi Bank and it's, it's still so 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 they're gonna struggle um to um to survive uh, i'm not saying that it's a, a problem bank but it's still um not easy sailing and a challenge for the uh, for the bank to survive in the future they'll get there and and it's it's kind of okay to have it state supported now it lowers their funding costs obviously and the state is willing to to prop up capital but it's kind of you know not ideal i think what are deposits doing in New Zealand? In America, deposits are going down, and over the past month, uh, there's been a quite a you know significant drain on deposits in small banks, regional banks, and some of that money has gone into big banks, but it, not enough. So there's been a flood from from the general banking sector to money market funds, uh, you know, ultimately leading to the, to the Federal Reserve, and the, you know has a reverse repo facility it's basically a deposit yeah. facility um what's what does that look like in new zealand i don't think that it's really um a big of an issue i think depositors here are sticky um the, the alternatives i mean the big four banks they have about they have a large fraction of the total market and these are australian owned large banks and there's no reason to believe that Australian banks will get into trouble. Also, you know, again, here, Australian banks supervision is probably equally strong, or if not stronger than New Zealand supervision. So they belong to the, to, to the, you know, the Australian New Zealand banking system. Um, they're probably the best supervised banking systems with very solid banks. So I don't think that the public feels that there is any risk that they lose out. Interestingly, there's still not a, an, a, a deposit insurance system in force here in New Zealand. So maybe some people may have become a bit jittery, but then again, the safety of the system is perceived very high. So I don't expect a lot of run. The thing is, I was actually 
about to look into these numbers, whether there was deposit flight. The problem is the data availability. Um, yeah, so I, I, I couldn't get my fingers around it because then you have to look, like in the US, you can look at these call reports and then figure out where money is going from and whether it leaves a single bank. We have a similar system like that. They, they call it a dashboard from the Reserve Bank, which is quite detailed, but they come out every quarter and it takes a while before the quarterly information um, is published. So, you know, ideally I would like to have the data from um, the latest data available, but I have to wait a couple of weeks before I get that to give a, a firm answer on your question. But I don't think there is that, that much of a, a risk here. I want to ask about the risks that you see in the uh, New Zealand banking system of interest rate risk and credit risk. It's it's my understanding that America is, you know, and I'm American, so I'm always thinking of, you know, looking at things through the lens of America. Um, yep. The real estate boom uh, in America, to Americans, it seems extreme, but it's my understanding that actual housing price appreciation, it can be as much more extreme in places like Canada and Australia what yeah, but is also here in New Zealand. Okay, okay, that's what yeah. I thought. Uh, so, is there a risk that if housing prices go down, that banks will be on the hook, and that there is credit risk? And I also want to ask: in America, there's a, a fixed rate mortgages, thirty years, uh, and I know in Europe that's you, you know it's, yeah. it's 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 a American thing. So, uh, if you own, if you, not if you, if banks who make thirty year mortgages, that's more interest rate risk because um, you know it's thirty yeah. years, it's fixed. As opposed yeah. to if it's a floating rate mortgage, you know, in Italy, it's five years, there's much less credit risk. Um, so I, I want to ask you about interest rate risk and credit risk in, in New Zealand. I think credit risk will increase because of house prices are, are going down now and the economy is meant to, you know, because of these initiatives of the Reserve Bank, uh, jacking up the interest rates, the economy will cool. A lot of people have bought how, houses in 2000 to uh, 20, uh, 2020 and 21. So there may be a bit of credit risk there. Again, here, uh, New Zealand regulations are such that they stress uh, loan applicants, um, I think, at 8% interest rate before they are allowed to buy a house You know, at the time. So um, before banks were allowed to, to lend to mortgages, to mortgage holders or to uh, homeowners, um, the homeowners were stressed um, or, you know, they, they, uh, they require at least a borrow to pay about say 8% even if the going rate is way lower. So credit risk may be on the rise, but I don't think it's going to be large numbers. Um, but yeah, some people will feel feel the squeeze and the um, the duration of mortgages here is way shorter than in in, uh, in the US. Like in, in Holland and the US, it's not abnormal to have 30 years, but here I think it's about five years and then it stops. Uh, just how the market works here. Um, so yes, there will be some some of the mortgages will um, will end their fixed uh, period um, in the in the months to come, and they will have to re renegotiate or they have to re um, reset their rates at a higher level. And and there's where you see this. Um, there's where you will see the 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 market having an effect on um, on in particular credit risk, uh, interest rate risk. Thank you, Professor. One of my final questions is about. The, um, I, I want to ask about the bank regulatory requirements in the U.S. It's my understanding that the uh, you know, President Trump administration uh, rolled back certain uh, regulations on 
for for banks for for on stress tests um for, for they they lowered the um uh, excuse me, they they raised the level at which banks would get stress tests yeah. and then the Federal Reserve and the FDIC. Tell me when that happened and uh, y- y- yeah. So my understanding was that it happened in 2018 under the Trump administration. They 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 increased the um, the level so that more banks could fly under the radar. I think it was 250 billion total assets or so. You know, so they so they made it easier for smaller banks to not satisfy the requirements, which um, and, and sort of. Uh, be freed of stress test consequences and so uh, that pro- probably uh, you know these regulations will probably be revisited what i find kind of interesting here is that in, in you know from the basel point of view and if you look at basel 3 um, implementation reports you know, the us comes across as always be super compliant with basel 3 regulations but it's kind of disturbing because it only applies to the large internationally operating banks in the U.S. And that is actually the remit of Basel III, where, you know, Basel III is only for large and international operating banks. And so, but a lot of smaller banks in the U.S. are just, I mean, they don't have to satisfy Basel III requirements. And so it looks like for these banks, nothing has changed since the global financial crisis, which I think is a bit of a worry because... You know, there was a reason why we have Basel III, and you see it at work in in Europe now, in particular, but also other countries like Australia, New Zealand, where these rules do create a stable bank, banking system, and um, and so the U.S. may be super or maybe fully compliant with Basel III regulation, but on the on the other hand, there is a, a vast number of small banks which, in total. Um, comprise a lot of the or cover a lot of the economy of the US, which are more or less on the same regulatory footing as they were 15 years ago. That to me is a bit of a worry. <laughs> so, and I can see why you know, commentators and pundits identify that worry as well. Yes. And a lot of those smaller regional banks uh, punch up, they, they make a disproportionate amount of loans. Uh, to to commercial real estate so, exactly yeah. yeah which is which we all know is very risky so you have high risk and you have low regulation so what could possibly go wrong you know it's it's tricky in a way but then again you know um, let's see how it goes but there is a bit of an issue there I think that that the U S may have to solve uh, going forward but you know that's um, time will tell I think. Yes. Well, uh, Professor, it's been a, a privilege getting to, to hear your, your insights. You know, as you can tell, uh, I don't know a lot about bank regulatory capital, and I feel like a, a lot of people don't. It's a very complex issue. Um, could you just summarize uh, uh, for us how you, th- how, you think, how you see things playing out and how uh, bank regulatory capital uh, requirements uh, play a role in that? To be honest, I think there's not going to be a lot of changes with respect to capital requirements. They're high and there's a lot of tools in the toolkit that can still be used and that have not been used. So my reference just back to the, the US system is that you know the Basel III toolkit is available and yet the, U, the US decided not to apply all the tools to the US banks. And there may be good reasons for that. So I'm not, not, I'm not being normative here and telling you what, what a country should do. But there are many tools in the in the regulatory toolkit that can be used. So I don't think that the Basel Committee is going to change a lot uh, based on what it sees now. It's a very stable and predictable um, global regulator where, where they cover the interests of 
I think 25 countries. And this was kind of, if you look at the shock, Switzerland is a Basel member, yes, and the US is a Basel member, but they were kind of localized shocks. Um, I think that is insufficient to move and to change a lot with respect to um, the, the Basel III framework. So my suggestion or what I predict is that countries may make more use of the tools offered by Basel III. And I think there will be a more focus on, on the liquidity dimension here. We, uh, I think most regulators were surprised with this, the swiftness and the speed with which depositors are able today to, um, to flee to, to safer uh, harbors. I think that caught many people by surprise. So we may see some changes uh, over time with respect to the rules on liquidity. Yes, and uh, prof Professor, uh, people could find your work on Twitter. You are at uh, Ketir1 and your, your blog, uh, uh, Capital Issues. That's it, correct. Capital uh, CapitalIssues.co, not com, like your website, I think. Also with a co instead of a com. Um, yeah, yeah, blockers, yeah. And, and my Twitter handle is Setia1, which is uh, Common Equity Tier 1, yes. Uh, there we go. Well, Professor, thank you so much for sharing your, your insights and thank you, everyone, for watching. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at BlockWorks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined. Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and BlockWorks Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again and be well.